The tragedy is, and it is for me personally, for my party, for our whole people, and for my right honourable friend herself, a very real tragedy. The Prime Minister's perceived attitude towards Europe is running increasingly serious risks for the future of our nation. It risks minimising our influence and maximising our chances of being once again shut out. We've paid heavily in the past for late starts and squandered opportunities in Europe. We dare not let that happen again. If we detach ourselves completely, as a party or as a nation, from the middle ground of Europe, the effects will be incalculable and very hard ever to correct. Professor Simon Hicks, the Howard Lasky Professor of Political Science here at the LSE. Thank you for joining me today. Welcome. I want to ask you about this quote, because this isn't a quote from recent years. It's not about Brexit, but it was actually made in 1990 by one man called Geoffrey Howe. Do you think his warning about the price being incalculable of Britain detaching itself from Europe, do you think that warning has come true? Well, let me go back a bit. I mean, there's, there's two aspects to what he was saying. So one, I mean, it's a very famous speech because it led to then, it was the beginning of the downfall of Margaret Thatcher. Um, and his speech was essentially making a point that Britain was already semi-detached in its relationship with the EU. In fact, the UK had been semi-detached in its relationship with the EU right back to the 1950s. So there was nothing particularly new about what he was saying in 1990. And there's been a tension at the heart of British politics between politicians on both in both Conservatives and Labour who've wanted the UK to be part of the mainstream process of European integration and politicians in the UK in both parties who've wanted the UK to not be part of that process. And we've had a mantra in Britain to say we, we want economic union, but we don't want political union. And as the process of political union has progressed in Europe, particularly from the 1980s onwards, is that tension has become central to a lot of domestic British politics. So, so you then, you know, and uh, that tension did, didn't come to the fore until you really had a push for, for example, single currency, uh, the Schengen area with uh, no controls of borders and so on. So once you've got the real, the meat in a sense of deeper political integration in the EU, then that, that the, the, the balance between economic integration and political integration became very difficult for the British ruling class. So how, in a sense, was at the at the peak of that with the process of the single market? Margaret Thatcher and the, and the the right of the Conservative Party were worrying about sovereignty. They didn't want EU social standards, EU environment standards. They didn't want deeper integration of justice and home affairs. They didn't want deeper integration of foreign affairs. They didn't want to be part of of the of economic and monetary union. And so they opted out of various bits and pieces of the EU. And and then we roll forward then to David Cameron and the referendum. And really, the referendum is about that. The referendum is sooner or later, we are going to have to make a choice. Are we going to be part of this process of political integration in Europe or are we not? There's, you know, a certain point you couldn't sustain having this halfway house of saying we want to be part of the single market. We don't want to be part of anything else. The single market itself is a political project with a capital P. It involves the free movement of goods, services, capital and labour on a continental scale. That requires a court to enforce the rules. It requires an executive proposed legislation. It requires a legislature. And it requires the free movement of people and the regulation of those things. So they, these are all capital P political. So it's not a coincidence that Europe is the only major world region where they've been able to move from free trade 
to a single market because that step is a big political step. So, you know, so in Britain to say we're in favour of economic union but not political union is no longer sustainable once you really, once you've created and set up a single market. It's not sustainable to say we just want free trade, we don't want political union. So we were sooner or later, we were going to have to make that kind of choice. Mm -hmm. And that's in a sense what I feel the referendum is about. Right. What I find interesting is that, as I said, this was a speech made in 1990 and it seems like, you know, there's so many parallels with the kind of debates that we're having today. And I think a lot of people see Brexit as this, you know, final decision. Okay, we're out now. But I think, as you say correctly, we're still debating. I mean, yeah. Brits are still <coughs> debating whether what the relationship is. Oh, the relationship's not going to go away. One, you know, <laughs> one of the, one of the ironies is once we're out, our relationship with the EU is still going to carry on being a central feature of British politics. Why? Because the EU is going to be the rest of the EU. The EU twenty seven single market is going to be Europe's largest trading partner. And that relation, that economic and political relationship is going to be essential to the success for our economy and our political strategy in the world. Um, we're going to have to cooperate with the EU on security and defense. We're going to have to cooperate with the EU on, on sharing data and fighting terrorism. And in economics, we're going to have to have, have a very deep economic relationship with the EU because it constitutes almost 50% of our trade and about, you know, 12 to 15% of our GDP. So, we will end up on the outside having to deal with the EU. And the problem from that perspective is we no longer have a seat at the table on the inside. And if you are on the outside, as Norway and Switzerland and everybody else has learned when dealing with the EU, the EU is a very big, powerful and rigid political player. It says, these are our rules, take it or leave it. You can leave it if you want, we don't care. But if you want to have access to our market, you have to apply our rules you have to apply EU standards and you have to have ECJ jurisdiction. That's the deal. That's the deal that they've given Norway, they've given Switzerland, they've given South Korea, and they've given Canada. And that's the deal they're going to give the UK. And the U that's very difficult for the UK. So we're going to find we're on the outside and we're still subject to the political integration process of the EU, whether we like it or not. And so that's going to be very difficult. And I, I actually expect the British public is going to become even more anti-EU. Mm -hmm. from the outside. I mean, we've seen that in Switzerland and Norway. We've seen the Swiss and the Norwegian publics become more anti-EU since they've decided not to join. So, for example, if you compare Swiss and Austrian public opinion, they were similar until Switzerland decided not to join and Austria did. And if you compare Swedish and Norwegian public opinion, they were similar until Sweden decided to join and Norway didn't. Very close decision in Norway. And the Swedish public has carried on and gradually become more and more pro-European, although not as pro-European, of course, as Germany or, or the Benny Lux. Norwegian public opinion has gradually become more and more anti-European. Why? Because they're on the outside and the EU basically tells them what to do without them having any say. And we, we, I know we're bigger than Norway and bigger than Switzerland, but still we're going to find ourselves very much in that relationship. Mm -hmm. So would it be correct to say that you love Europe? I wouldn't say love Europe. I mean, you know, I'm pro-European and I'm pro-American and I'm pro-British. And I don't, I don't see, I don't see contradictions in those things. Mm. Ultimately, I guess, I guess what I'm interested in uh, and what I think is I, I guess I'm a liberal with a small L. If what I want is there to be more and more freedom or choices for people in the world, I want their people to have possibilities to start their own businesses, to trade with whoever they want to trade with, to move and go and live wherever they want to go and live, to go and retire wherever they want to go and retire, to consume information where they want to. And so, you know, what I worry about 
nation states in a globalizing economy is we're too small. And what I like about the EU is it's an attempt to to reconcile two competing logics. One logic is an economic logic that is creating bigger and bigger markets. So, you know, um, Europe is a market on a continental scale and the big global players in the future are going to be continental scale markets. The United States, China, India, Brazil, Russia, the EU. These are continental scale economies. Continental scale economies maximize the type of economic opportunities that you have. And a political logic that is pushing you towards smaller and smaller homogeneous. People want to take back control, bring back power, you know, and the EU in a way is a way of reconciling that logic for our part of the world. You have a set of institutions at the European level that regulate a continental scale market, but you still have a lot of powers of national governments and regional governments and city governments and so on. So the United States is lucky. It's a continental scale economy with an architecture that allows for political powers at different levels of government. And what I liked about the EU was it's our version of that. It's our version of trying to create a a, a continental scale economy with a set of political institutions to govern. Right. So I I asked you whether you love Europe because I know you're an expert, a world-renowned expert on European Union politics. And so you arrive at your conclusion in quite an intellectual, academic way. But I think for a lot of people, that isn't enough for them. And I think a lot of yeah. people vote not with their brains, but a lot, many of them vote with their hearts. And, well, but you're also very outspoken in public yeah, about so, your views on the EU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right in that, you know, and I, I, people, identity matters and uh, cultural values matter. Uh, but ultimately, I'm of the view that what often shapes those values and those identities are economic experiences or economic opportunities or economic choices. So, you know, it's not, in, in a sense, people's preferences about the economy and they change quite quickly and culture changes very, very slowly. But when you experience things personally, then your, your identity does change. It's not, I don't think identities are fixed. I mean, we see national identities evolve and change all the time. Look at what's happened in Scotland, for example. And look, look what's happening in different parts of Europe right now with the kind of re-emergence of national identities. Um, and, and when, I think when you have large periods of economic growth and, and economic opportunity, uh, like we had in Europe in the 1980s with the creation of the single market and a booming European economy as a result, you had shifting identities. Suddenly there was a big wave of pro-European sentiment. And, and when you have a downturn in the economy and austerity and cuts in public spending and so on, and the Europe gets blamed for it, then you get a resurgence of national identity. So, so I don't think necessarily that economic interests and identities are in conflict with each other. They're interrelated to each other. Mm-hmm. And, and my own personal experience, I lived in, I did my PhD in Florence in Italy. Um, I lived in Brussels and I, I worked for a period in the European Parliament. I've lived in America. My wife is American. Uh, you know, I've lived in lots of different places. So, so, and I, so in a sense, I have a global identity. I have a European identity. I have an English identity. I grew up in Brighton. I have a London identity. And I, I don't have a problem with those multiple identities. And I, and I don't necessarily see them in conflict the way a lot of people do. Mm. I want to shift gears a little bit okay. and ask you about Harold Lasky, who, who, um, whose name is, your, your, the name of the, on the, the chair, basically. Because I don't know much about him. So do you actually want to talk about how this position was actually created? Um, and you were the first person to assume this position. How it has informed you? Yeah. In your work. So, okay. Um, so a few years ago, under our previous director, Craig Calhoun, he, he had the idea that in, uh, several departments at LSE, he wanted to create named chairs that were named in honor of, uh, famous members of the faculty. 
so, for example, we have the Anthony Giddens chair in sociology, uh, and we have, I think, the Morishima chair in, in economics, and, and we have the Harold Lasky chair in, in government. Um, and then uh, I was asked to be given the chair as an honorific, and I was delighted to accept. Um, so it comes with a title, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't come with more salary or more money or anything, it's just a title, which is a lovely title to have. Um, Harold Lasky himself was one of the core figures of the development of the Department of Government. He was one of the founders of political science here at the LSE. He actually described himself as a political scientist. He was interested in uh, political behaviour as well as political institutions. He's known in British politics as being uh, on the left and a Marxist in British politics. He was very, uh, he was in the Attlee uh, government. He was chairman of the Labour Party at that time. He was uh, attacked quite vociferously on the right. Uh, he was Jewish and he was attacked for, there was often a kind of element of anti-Semitism in some of the opposition to him. And when I gave the inaugural Harold Lasky les lecture here at the LSE, I met the, the librarian from the LSE came and showed me the archives they had. And uh, when Harold Lasky was appointed, there was a letter to the then director of the LSE. I think it was, uh, I can't remember who it was at that time, but it was in the 1930s. Uh, and and the, letter, the letter said, uh, dear LSE director, I'm, I think it's inappropriate that you have somebody like Harold Lasky teaching political theory at the London School of Economics. You don't, we shouldn't have a foreigner teaching such an important subject. Of course, he was a British citizen. He's not a foreigner. Mm. What they meant by foreigner was that he was Jewish. And then there was a reply from the director. And the director said, I can assure you that Professor Lasky is very English. <laughs> and so, but you can, you know, so he faced some real challenges in his life. Mm. He lost a very famous uh, case against uh, Beaverbrook uh, newspapers. Uh, he lost a very de a defamation case. Uh, this destroyed him both uh, uh, physically and emotionally, mentally, and he eventually died of pneumonia. Uh, but and that was the beginning of his his downfall. And and they accused him of of being in favour of revolution. Uh, he'd made a speech, and it had been reported in the newspaper. He was in the speech. He was calling for revolution. In the court case, he argued that. He was not calling for revolution. He was calling for the workers to rise up to vote for Labour. Mm. And it was reported as he was in favour of revolution. And the court, and so he, he, he sued for defamation and he lost the case. And the courts sided with the newspapers against him. Um, part of why this is important is because he'd written about the judiciary in Britain. He'd written about the judiciary in Britain being older, white, establishment men who defended the interests of the ruling elites and the ruling establishment. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, that's exactly what happened in his own life. So he predicted, in a sense, well ahead. He'd written books about this well ahead. Um, so he's a fascinating character. Uh, he is a powerful public intellectual in Britain, but also a serious social scientist. Mm. Uh, he, when he was in America, he was in America in the interwar period before coming back to Britain. He, he had some time at Harvard, and he, uh, he was teaching, at, uh, I think, in the Harvard Law School, and then he came back uh, and was here at the LSC. So, very interesting mm -hmm. person. Yeah. So, as you say, he was a prominent figure both in the Labour Party, but also, he balanced this uh, as being also being um, a professor here at LSC. And 
I see some parallels with what you do because you're very outspoken on Twitter. <laughs> you do a lot of interviews. Yeah, do I do quite a lot of public speaking. And yeah, you do a lot of public speaking. Stuff. You're doing a lot of talks on Brexit recently. Yes, obviously. and I'm giving a lecture tomorrow night, uh, the annual lecture for the Journal of Market right. Studies. Exactly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I've always had yeah. one foot in academia and one foot outside, mm-hmm. and I think I don't see contradiction between you know being doing cutting-edge research, I do a lot of quantitative research, teaching and being a public intellectual. And we used to think, you know, as, as academics, we used to sort of look down our nose at public intellectuals. Oh, they're not serious scholars. They don't do serious research. But I think that's gradually changing. And I think there's a new generation of people who try and engage with the public who also do high-end, cutting-edge research. And we have a lot of people here at LSE who are like that. And I think that's been a while like that in the States. And it's not been so much here in the UK. We tended to have people who are public intellectuals and people who are serious academics. Mm-hmm. And now I think gradually we're starting to see see both. And I think social media has really helped that because you can promote your own research directly on social media as well as engage in public debates uh, much more easily on social media. So I, I, I've tried to, to use that. And I've always had one foot in and one foot out. I've always been involved in in running and setting up NGOs as well as being an academic. Mm-hmm. I run a, a think tank in Brussels called Vote Watch. I'm chairman of Vote Watch. It's been running now for over 10 years. It tracks voting in the European Parliament and voting in the EU Council, so it promotes transparency in the EU institutions. Um, so I, I've always had one foot doing my mainstream academic stuff and one foot doing a bunch of things outside academia. Mm-hmm. But with Brexit obviously being the topical issue and you being a European Union expert... Now that we're leaving the EU, do you see the rest of your career as being a gigantic effort to get the UK back into the no, EU? No, not at all. I mean, you know, I, I I doubt the UK will rejoin in my lifetime if it decides to. Um, we are leaving. I mean, as somebody who's taught and researched EU politics for 20 plus years, I understand the deep historical roots of the decisions we've made to leave. And there isn't any going back. I don't think there's a going back. I don't think there should be a second referendum. I don't think there's a way back. We've made we sooner or later we were going to have to make a decision: Are we part of this political project or not? And I, I see this decision as we're not. It, there will be some economic co- cost to that. There'll be some political cost to that. But it's not the end of the world. We're a rich, wealthy, advanced nation. We'll figure it out. Um, it's not going to be a complete disaster for Britain. It's not going to be a complete disaster for the EU. And, and we will come to a settlement. And I'm hoping that we will come to an arrangement or a relationship where Britain's relationship with the EU is a bit like Canada's relationship with the United States. Closely integrated economies, close friends, close strategic partners globally. And if we can get to that point, I, you know, that would not be such a bad thing. And that could be a settlement that's quite sustainable. Will we still need people who are experts on EU politics? Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, we'll still have a relationship with the EU. We'll just be teaching the EU like we have professors of American politics or professors of Indian politics. Or, you know, we have professors of EU politics. But equally, you know, I'm a professor really of comparative politics. Not only do I do EU politics, I also do comparative political institutions, comparative political behavior. I've, I've written and researched on electoral systems and, and, and been involved in the design of different electoral systems in different parts of the world. Um, I've written about, you know, voting in the Korean National Assembly or, or designing electoral systems in different places or designing constitutions in different places. So, so you know, I, I think of myself as a comparative political scientist who happens to study the EU with some of my research. Mm. And 
obviously today we have the no yesterday we had the Commonwealth uh, summits and we had Theresa May meeting a lot of the Commonwealth leaders. Do you think that a trade deal is is um, likely with uh, big countries like India in the in the coming future? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that Britain will want trade deals with some of the countries the EU does not have trade deals with. Britain already has agreements with over hundred has over one hundred and seventy agreements with other countries in the world as a result of our EU membership. A lot of people forget that. So we have very big trade agreements with with South Korea and Canada, for example, via the EU, and also one with 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 Japan that's in the process of being ratified. The EU does not have trade deals with the USA, India, Brazil, and Russia. They're the kind of big economies that, that we don't have deals with. I think it's a lot harder to get deals with those than I think a lot of the British uh, political commentariat think. In fact, you know, doing a trade deal with the US is really hard because the US do- works like the EU. You want to deal with the US, take it or leave it. You accept US rules, that's the deal. So, for example, in Canada, which has a trade deal with the US and a trade deal with the EU, you have beef farmers in Canada who have one field full of cows destined for the American market and one field full of cows destined for the EU. And they have to apply EU and US rules. That's the deal. That's hard for Britain, I think, because of sovereignty issues. And the same with India. With India, a trade deal with India, the Indians will, will ask for more free movement of people. They want more access for their students to the UK. They want more access for highly skilled workers to the UK. So we'd have to liberalise our, our immigration policy towards India. So again, that's not going to be easy politically in the current political climate. So I think eventually we could get deals with these places. I think they're going to take a lot longer than I think a lot of our political elite currently think. And I think they could be politically more difficult to agree than I think they currently think. Mm. And what kind of leadership would you like to see leading this? Because I know you've called for a centrist party, is that right? Yeah, well, look, I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of transparent about my politics. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... I guess, you know, ever since I was a teenager, I've been a sort of liberal left and, you know, you might say, well, typical university professor, mm-hmm. cosmopolitan intellectual liberal left who's lived in different places in the world. Of course he would be. Well, yeah, so what? Um, <laughs> so, and that's not really represented right now in British politics. And I think, you know, we have Theresa May, who's taken the Conservative Party off quite right wing, both in terms of economic policy and in terms of social policies. Yeah. And you've got a Labour Party now, which is which is which is quite left wing, and all quite quite socially conservative on some things as well. Uh, and I think you know, there's an opportunity to to. Uh, it, it's very difficult with the British electoral system. It's very difficult with the British political system. But it's going to be interesting to see whether or not uh, that polarisation in British politics is sustainable in the medium term. Mm-hmm. We, so had, the, we had it for a period between 1979 and about 1987. We had a similar type of polarisation. But then you had a split within the Labour Party back then. Uh, and then you had Labour be pulling back to the centre with Neil Kinnock and then, and then Tony Blair. So... We may be in for a period of, say, 10 years of polarisation before there's a major change. Mm. So the Lib Dems aren't doing it for you? Lib Dems are not doing it for me. And it's interesting why. Um, I think it, partly it's leadership, partly it's failure of the party to get over being in coalition with the Conservatives. Partly it's a generational thing. Uh, it's it's difficult to know why the Lib Dems are, aren't kind of, aren't taking up that, that, that position or why mm. they're not. I, partly, media doesn't even discuss them. It's interesting to see. I, I'm not quite sure why they're only languishing down at seven or eight percent in the polls. Mm. 
we're seeing these kind of grassroots movements now and people trying to stray away from the party sh- traditional party structures you have momentum on the left mm-hmm. um, but you also have other examples yeah. in around all around Europe do you see a same thing in the UK maybe with a kind of transpartisan grassroots yeah, movement I mean, we've got, by young people yeah I mean we've seen lots of those types of things I think this will only happen after Brexit because I think a lot of these movements are trying to st- mobilise themselves as anti-Brexit movements Brexit I don't think is going to be stopped and I, you know, I think a lot of the political class are reluctant to get involved in an anti-Brexit movement because they think that this is really, it's not sustainable. We are going to leave and then you'll be seen very much as a failure. A few people are, of course, uh, you know, like Chukramuna and like the Lib Dems. Um, but I think after Brexit, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in that, that political space and whether the, some of these new movements that have come along, we've seen Renew as a new party that's going to be standing candidates in local election. We've seen, you know, Open Britain. We've now seen that somebody's put up 50 million to found some new party. It's going to be interesting. There's action going on in this space, largely driven from outside politics. That's interesting. It's driven from outside politics. And with social media, I think the barriers to start new political movements are much lower than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm. So it's very easy. You can start a new political party over a wet weekend in November if you've got enough followers and enough resources and enough, you know, momentum, you know, with, with a, so, it, and done at the grassroots level with social media, you, you, there isn't the threshold of the mainstream media as the gatekeepers that used to be the gatekeepers of mm. that. Those gatekeepers' powers are much weaker than they used to be. And we're seeing, this is why it's so easy now to start parties. Macron, brand new party in France. We see, going back to Berlusconi, started a new party in mm. Italy, and we've seen then Five Star Movement in Italy, and we've seen new parties springing up all over the place in Europe. It's much easier to start a new party now than it was 10, 15 years ago. Partly that's media, and partly that's younger people not identifying with established parties and looking for something new. And I think we're in a similar moment now in British politics. Mm. Well, you're a young guy, do you think? Is this something you'd be interested in doing? <laughs> I'm a young guy. It's nice of you to say. I'm 50 in September. <laughs> you're running a marathon on Sunday. I'm right? running a marathon on Sunday. Yep. Kind of midlife crisis, I guess. I'm running a marathon on Sunday. I'm 50 in, in, in September. Um, the London Marathon. London Marathon. Uh, and uh, my first marathon. Yeah, I'm a young I, Look, I'm too old to be involved in politics. The The... the I'm happy to be, you know, an outsider, or maybe an advisor, or this kind of role. I'm an academic. I, you know, what do I know about politics? I'm an academic. I teach and I research. That's what I do, uh, and I write. Uh, but, but what I can imagine, what we need is a thirty-something woman from the north of England. That should be the kind of leader <laughs> of the uh, of a new political movement. That that's what we need. Somebody young, charismatic, uh, who probably, who you know, it'll be. Doesn't have to be a woman, but it would be nice if it was a woman. I think that would be that would be the new person to break the mold of British politics. I think. Okay. Well, you've been very generous with your time, so I just want to finally talk about the the marathon, and because uh, you're still raising money for it. Yes, I am. Um, and you're raising money for a charity called Heads Together. Heads Together. That's right. I wanted to run for uh, actually adolescent mental health. Uh, there's several charities that that promote uh, mental health awareness amongst young people in schools and universities. And uh, I contacted some of these charities and they said that they're part of this umbrella group called Heads Together. Heads Together brings together eight mental health charities, including several that, that promote uh, mental health among young people and adolescents. So mm-hmm. that's who I'm running for. I have a Virgin Money Giving page. 
So you okay. can go, you can go to Virgin Money Giving and just put in Simon Hicks. You'll come up with my yep. with my page, and I'm I'm, I'm I'm raising money for them. Hey, we'll put the link in the description. And uh, good luck with the marathon. Thank you very much. Enjoy the hot weather. <laughs> thank you very much. Yes, Simon. Right. Thank you. <laughs>